be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to need Bibles today. So uh, if you need uh, scriptures, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to hand out. Who needs a Bible to follow along today? We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. According to the Chicago Tribune, a man walked into a suburban uh, Walgreens to get cash from an ATM. The security video footage shows that he walked into the store, he went over to the ATM, and he was carrying a drink. He set it down on the floor, and he did his banking, and then he went back and got his uh, drink after doing his banking, and then he did a double take. There was something else on the floor, and the video shows him leaning over for a long time, And then he looks around to see if anybody's watching. And he leans over again. He picks up a bag and walks out of the store. Inside that bag, which had a Chase Bank logo on the outside, was $17,000. By the way, if you'd have gone into the ATM, what would you have done? So he drives home. And it's a 45-minute drive to his house. And by the time he gets home, he's thinking about this, and he realizes he was probably caught on video. So what does he do? He decides to go to the Chase Bank and to turn in the money. And he did, and he became a local hero. He was interviewed by radio and TV and uh He was in the newspapers, Associated Press picked it up around the world, and he got gifts from uh, unknown people and a big basket of gifts, and uh, he was uh, pursued for romantic inquiries, and um, he was praised publicly by a nun for his honesty and integrity. Um, However, the local police weren't entirely convinced of all the facts. And so after continued investigation and bringing in the FBI, they determined his story wasn't quite on the up and up. And uh, so they confronted him with the truth. He had lied about where he found the money because he didn't want to be exposed. He said he found it in the local mall. And... Uh, But the police uh, confronted him with the truth, and uh, so he confessed. Now, here's the question. By the way, he didn't go to jail, but he had to pay a pretty good fine for a false police report. Um, Sometimes truth does not come out until people are caught. Sometimes we don't tell the whole truth until we are caught. David, you remember, was tempted by a beautiful woman he saw bathing on uh, outside while he was walking around on his roof, Second Samuel chapter 11. Then he arranged for an opportunity to sleep with this beautiful woman. Now that took a little time and some kind of arrangements before that could all come down. And it was all about him seeing her from his rooftop. Um, she, was, she got pregnant. A 
And now he conjured up a plan. How could he arrange this to look like her husband was the one who caused the pregnancy? And so he brings his top soldier home from battle to orchestrate an opportunity for, her to, for him to sleep with his wife. But that doesn't work. And after several attempts, David orders his elite soldier to be put on the front line so that he would die. Um, And after that, the plan worked. David lied, he committed adultery, and he committed murder. Then after many days, he was caught on God's virtual video camera. The omniscient God knows there are no secrets from God. David was keeping secret secrets, and but he couldn't keep them from God. Why is it hard to admit sin until we are caught? Here's how the story with David unfolds. Second Samuel chapter twelve verses. We're going to start with verses one through fourteen. Uh, David is facing his sin, facing his sin. So. Here we, uh, we start, a new sender, verse 1. What is that all about? Uh, if you remember, there's an unusual feature in chapter 11. Uh, David is the great king. David has been the leader. He's been out front all through First and Second Samuel, leading all the way. Whatever it is, he's been leading, leading his troops. But he reaches a point in chapter 11 where he just sort of sits back with success and comfort and he decides, I'm going to send Joab, the military commander. Joab is going to do my bidding. And so uh, Joab does. David is using his power and authority for his own comfort and personal welfare. He then sent someone to retrieve Bathsheba. He then sent for Uriah. He then sent Uriah back to the front so that he would die. He then sent for Bathsheba to come into his home. And now we have a, a new sender, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. God has been patiently watching David do his own thing. If you remember chapter twelve, uh, chapter 11, verse 27, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God had had it up to here with David. Now David is taking some, or God is taking some action with David. The tables are turned. There is a new sender the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan tells a helpful story, verses 1 through 4. And this is a little parable. You know, parables, uh, the way we talk about them in the New Testament, are um, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Well, there is a story here for David that has truth that God wants him to understand. Uh, when he came to him, when, when Nathan came to David in verse 1, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare the meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. 
So we have a rich man, a poor man, and a ulam. Ulam is a female. Um, the rich man turns out to be heartless, selfless, and greedy. He has everything he needs. He's wealthy. He has plenty of cattle to offer something uh, to his guest. Hospitality was really, really important, real high value in the ancient culture. And so the rich man is wanting to fulfill that hospitality requirement, but he does it at the expense of the poor man. And he takes uh, this uh, little female lamb that was raised by this family like a pet and uh, he takes it away and he uh, provides dinner for his uh, guest. Now David listens to the story. Nathan is telling him this story and David listens carefully. Uh, David probably has an eye. There's probably some truth here. I'm going to need to do something as the king. I'm getting this information. I have to take action here. So David listens carefully, and the story gets under his skin. It made him angry, very angry. And look at the angry response in verses 5 and 6. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. That's pretty radical because there's nowhere in the Old Testament where anybody is ordered to be put to death because um, they took somebody's animal or even killed somebody's animal. David is a little over the top on his response here uh, about this rich man. This is what the Lord, uh, excuse me, um, verse 6. He must pay, this David says, for the lamb four times over. Now that's biblical. He could be required to pay four times over or provide four lambs to replace the one that he had taken. And David says, because he did such a thing and had no pity. That guy was heartless. He had no pity for this family, for this man. And he took his uh, only animal. As surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. Verses 7 through 12, we see a direct rebuke from Nathan. And it starts with a reminder of God's favor. Uh, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the man in the story. David, you are the guilty one. You are the one responsible. And then he reminds David of God's favor in the past. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, meaning the kingdoms, all of the kingdom of Israel, ten tribes in the north, all of the kingdoms of Judah, two tribes in the south, and they became united under David because God orchestrated that. And notice this, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you more. Now think about David here. David, you could have had more. David, you walked away. You shut down. You put me aside. You put my values aside. And for yourself, you could have had more, David. I could have accomplished more through you if you hadn't gone your own way. And God is just reminding David. David, 
The reason you were so popular, the reason you were given so much power is because of what I have done in your life. And David, you've misused it badly. It was God who gave David the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. It was God who brought unity. And now we see in verse 9 that secrets are no longer secrets. And Nathan says, Nathan is a prophet and he's speaking for God. He's representing God. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Because that's how God describes David's disobedient. Despising, hating the word of God, the word of the Lord. Which is the same as hating the one who gives the word. It's the same as as hating the Lord himself for denying uh, his will, his truth. Nathan says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. God clearly identifies David's secrets. Remember chapter 11? It's all about secrets. And now God is the one who's identified David's secret deeds. Though David did not personally kill Uriah, David ordered his death at the hands of the Ammonites. And um, God says, David, you killed Uriah. You are responsible. You are a murderer. God holds him directly responsible for this death. Verses 10 through 12, there will be consequences, David. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. There are going to be consequences, David. The sword will never depart. There will be violence and treachery in your own house, and it's never going to depart. There are always going to be seeds, and they're always going to surface at some time. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, your family, David, I'm going to bring calamity on you before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he, it's going to be one man, he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. David, you did this in secret. David, you didn't think anybody knew. You saw Bathsheba from your rooftop. And you brought her into your bedroom. And you got her pregnant. And you thought nobody knew. David, you did this in secret. But I'm going to do something in broad daylight, God says. Before your eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one. Verse 12. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. It will be public for the nation. Verse 13, a surprise confession. Then David said to Nathan, I'm caught. I've sinned against the Lord. Um, There's no running from God. David is caught. This had been going on for weeks and months. I imagine David struggled with this for a long time. There was guilt under the surface, bubbling all the time. David confesses. He 
he admits, he agrees. He's caught. That's sad that he had to wait until he was caught. But people do that, don't they? They sometimes wait until they're caught before they come clean with the truth. Now the weight of David's sin penetrates its heart like a sharp dagger. We're going to look at that in more detail next week. Psalm 51, David's response to this whole thing. We only get a short uh, mention here. Uh, David admits he can, that he has sinned against the Lord. Verse 13, a certain pronouncement. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So David confesses, and there the spokesman for God who understands the situation and realizes that, you know, we don't know if David's sincere or not. But it's backed by Psalm 51. And it's also backed by Nathan's response right here. The Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord is not holding you responsible. The Lord is forgiving you. The The Lord is not bringing the judgment you deserve because of your sin. You are not going to die because that's what David deserved. He deserved to be executed in the hands of his own nation. That's what the law of God, the law of the Old Testament said. So a question here, how can God forgive David? How can God forgive David? Why is this a question? Well, it's a question because of Luke 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That's what the law says. That's justice. This, you know, God just sort of explicitly tells us how important sexuality is and how, how significant sexual sin is, how important marriage is, and how much it is to be protected. There are boundaries around marriage. And um, so in the law, this is just, man, this would be scary if, if we had to live this in the American culture, wouldn't it? How many people would be dead? But this is what God said uh, 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, David did, with the wife of his neighbor. In fact, it was actually David's neighbor that lived next door. Both the adulterer and the adulteress. So according to this, David and Bathsheba, unless uh, it was against her will, and there's no suggestion at all that it was against her will, but they both, that's what they deserved. That would be justice. We, always, we, we like justice, and we, we want justice if it involves other people. We don't always like it if justice if it involves us. Uh, Leviticus 24, 17. If anyone takes the life of a hum, human being, anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. This is about murder. And according to the law, if you take the life of another person, if you murder another person, um, you deserve death. David deserved death on both counts. But the Lord has taken away your sin, Nathan said. The Lord is removing that, and you're not going to die. You're not going to have this penalty, David. I'm going to forgive you. So how can God forgive David? The answer is, God's character is just, but he is also loving and compassionate. So let's go back now, 400 years, Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 7. This is in the law, too. It's where um, 
It's listed not far after the Ten Commandments. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. So this would be the second time the Ten Commandments are written down. And he went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Next slide. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Next slide. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. How can God forgive? Well, even in the Old Testament, even under the law, God's character is revealed. This is how God has always been. God has always been loving. He's always been compassionate. He's always been forgiving. And he has forgiving, forgiven David. One, because David acknowledges that. David uh, admits his sin, his failure before God. And God offers forgiveness. Um, He is a gracious God. He grants favor even when it's not deserved. He forgives wickedness and rebellion. He did that. Same God we worship today. And he forgives wickedness and rebellion. But he also punishes the guilty. His love can be passed from generation to generation, even a thousand generations. But also sin has its consequences. And the sin of the parents can have consequences on the children up to the third or fourth generation. Now, is that like fair? You know, it's just like if somebody grows up in your home and they watch you be unfaithful to your mate, or if they watch you swear and lie, it just kind of rubs off on the whole family. Not only that, it sort of opens up your whole family to spiritual attack from the enemy. And uh, if you just leave it alone, it's just going to go on. It's going to pass from one generation to the next. If you want to call that generational sin, go ahead and call it. But if you've got this kind of environment and you try to raise a family in that, there's going to be consequences here. However, if you uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and you raise your family around this and, and you, when you make mistakes and when you sin, you, you confess and you're humble and uh, you seek forgiveness, well, God can bless that family for generation after generation up to a thousand generations and the idea is there, there's not a limit because most of us can't really count to a thousand anyway numbers 14 verses 17 through 20 now may the lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared the lord is slow to anger similar but not the same time the lord is slow to anger abounding in love forgiving sin and rebellion he did it then and god's people did some of the silliest things in the Old Testament, and yet God was gracious, he was forgiving, he was loving, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Next slide. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation, in accordance with your great love. This is Moses. He says, accordance with your great love, God, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. God, you're used to this by now. You've forgiven them over and over and over. And he's asking again. Next slide. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them 
as you ask. Is a forgiving God, a gracious God, a compa- and compassionate God. But there are consequences for sin. David's going to learn that. A sad co- consequence in verse 14. But because, of, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt of the Lord, the son born to you will die. The son that Bathsheba is carrying. The son that um, came from adultery. David, that you committed with Uriah's wife. It was not your own wife, David. The son will die. Because for a time, David left his God. David, this is David the man after God's own heart. He left his God. And one of the consequences will be the death of his son born out of adultery. And uh, one of the things I just want to clarify here, forgiveness is not the removal of all consequences. Forgiveness is not the removal of all consequences. One can be forgiven and still face serious consequences. A husband who commits adultery can be forgiven by God. He can be forgiven by his wife. But the consequences will remain. It will take a long time for trust to be restored. It won't be easy going just because one is forgiven. A murderer could be forgiven by God on death row. Their sins forgiven and they could be given the gift of eternal life. But that won't take them off death row necessarily. And they may face lethal injection. That would be the consequence for murder. A child can be forgiven by God and his parents or her parents for disobedience. But that doesn't mean that there won't be a loss of privileges. A drunk driver can be forgiven by God and still face the consequences like possibly going to jail or losing his or her license. David is forgiven by God, but now the consequences begin. Verses 15 through 25, facing consequences. The illness is verse 15, and after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he, and he became ill. It's just like happens right away. We don't know exactly how long, but it wasn't long. The child born to Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and David, the parents, becomes ill. Verses 16 and 17, we see the intercession. David is, has a soft, broken heart through, because of all that he's been through. David pleaded with God, verse 16, for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. David's heart has changed drastically, and it's because of the dire situation he is in. He's humbled before God. He is honest before God. He does not eat. He prays. You know what? David knows God. David knows 
that God is compassionate and gracious and forgiving. So he's going to give it all he's got here. He's going to humble himself. He's going to plead with God. God, don't take my son. God, don't take my son. And David truly is a humble, broken man. And he's asking for God's grace. And right now, in David's life, he has no more secrets. Verses 18 and 19, the death. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. And he said, is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. So this is the first consequence that David runs into. God did not answer David's prayer the way he had hoped. In fact, God followed through on his word. David earlier had despised his word, and the child is dead. Here we have um, his, his, David's attendants are worried. They're concerned. David, the great, strong king, is not so strong right now. David is humbled. Uh, he is weeping. He, 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 is, he won't eat. Um, they're afraid that he's going to do something dangerous. They're afraid, well, maybe he's going to take his life. This is not the David we're used to. Um, verses 20 and through 23, the aftermath. Then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. This is a different David. Going to, uh, he, he would have gone to the tabernacle, the house of the Lord. The temple wasn't built yet. He, he went and worshipped God. His, his son has died. He is grieved. He's poured out his soul, and he's gotten an answer from God. And takes a bath, puts on some lotion, he's going to eat some food, and he's going to worship. He, he, he's acknowledging that he is under the hand of the sovereign Lord of the universe. He hadn't been recently, but he is now. Um, verse 21 his, his attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now this child is dead. You, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? David is really practical here. He, he, uh, he understands what the, God's actions. He understands that God has followed through exactly on what he said he would do. David understands something about life after death. He says, can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. He understands that the child can't come back from death to life and be his child. But what he does understand, one day he, David, will die 
And one day he will see his child again. One day David has an expectation that he will be united with his own son. Now, this isn't like uh, proof, but I'd like to say this is a hint. This is a clue about what happens to babies. Now, I can't prove this, but this is a clue. David was a man who had eternal life. He understood that. And uh, he had lost his child through death. And David's expectations are, one day he, he will be reunited with his own son. And that would be in heaven. Now, all I'm saying here, this is a clue. It's not absolute proof. It's a clue. And um, I take it personally that I would expect a child um, to be in heaven. And a, a child who does not, who is too young to understand the gospel message. A child that has died. Uh, verses 24 and 25, the new son. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her. This would be months later. And made love to her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through the Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. So David will have another son. Seems like it happens really fast, doesn't it? This would be like the second year of the events of 2 Samuel 11. This son, who is named Solomon, will become a great king. He will be declared the wisest man in the world. He was given the name Jedidiah. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 through 16, that's called the Davidic covenant. That's a promise. It's an extremely important one to the entire Bible. God made a promise to David that he would have a son that reigned on the throne of David forever. By the way, the the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are still waiting for that king, for that leader who will reign on the throne forever. That lineage was passed from David to Solomon. You can trace it all the way through the Old Testament to Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. And he will reign on David's throne forever. It's still coming. Revelation chapter 20. So, there are some other consequences, and I'm just going to quickly look at some of the consequences David would face because of his sin. He was forgiven, but the consequences were painful. Uh, First, incest. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, the son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. What do we got here? This is one of the problems of having too many wives. Don't do it. David shouldn't have done this, but he did. But here's what happens. Amnon was David's son, and he fell in love with a half-sister. Absalom was a brother, a son of David, and a half-brother of Amnon. And he fell in love with a half-sister. Okay. Uh, 2 Samuel 13, verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. Next slide. 
Verse 11, but when she took him, when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. Next slide. But, 14, he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. David's son. David's family. Immorality in David's life is now in his family. Um, number two, uh, murder. Second Samuel 13. This is a chapter right after 12 that we just looked in. Absalom, this is another son of David, ordered his men, listen, when Amnon, this is his half-brother, who raped Tamar, is in high spirits from drinking wine, I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him, don't be afraid, haven't I given you this order to be strong and brave? So Absalom's man did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. So Amnon is dead. David's son is dead. By David's son, Absalom. Parents, this is hard, isn't it? When kids go off the reservation. Thirdly, incest. This is out of order chronologically. I realized this this morning. So just, it's still a consequence. Incest. Next slide. Next, Second uh, Samuel 16, verses 20 and 22. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give us your advice. What should I do? Ahithophel answered, sleep with your father's concubines. So, Absalom is given advice to sleep with dad's wives and concubines whom he left to take care of in the palace. Next slide. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched the tent for Absalom on the roof. This is the roof that David walked around on, by the way. And he slept with his father's concubine in the sight of all Israel in broad daylight. David slept with Bathsheba secretly. The consequences for David are going to be his wives are going to be publicly humiliated. His name will be publicly humiliated in all the nation. So that one's slightly out of order. Number four, separation. Second Samuel 13, this is separation. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. Why? They've just found out that Amnon is dead. So this is how I got out of order. The king too and all his attendants wept bitterly. Next slide. After Absalom fled and went to uh, Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. He missed He's separated from his son now that he loves for three years. This is heartbreaking for David. And David knows he's the one at fault for bringing this on his family. Next we come to divisions. 2 Samuel chapter 15. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. There's going to be a great division here. This is his son. David's son is against dad. Next slide. Then David said to all his officials... Who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And that's exactly what he did. He had to run, he had to flee, he had to pack up and go, and he had to leave some of his family behind. And that's why Absalom came and went on the rooftop with his wives, okay? 
revenge. Second Samuel 18, verse 15. This is later, and ten of Job's armor bearers surrounded Absalom. David's son struck him and killed him, so now David's losing another son. And uh, Joab is not ordered to do this, but Joab took it into his own hands. And David is going to lose a son. More grief, Second Samuel 18, verses 32, 33. More grief. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite re- replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like the young, that young man. That was not a good thing to say. He's saying, anybody against you should be like what happened to Absalom. That just kills David here. Next slide. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And he went and he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if I had only died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. All the things that Absalom has done, and David is just grieving deeply for his son. Desertion, 2 Samuel 20, verse 2. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed there by their king and all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So what's happened here? Ten tribes in the north, Israel, have evacuated David. They, they have departed. David is left with two tribes now. The story of 2 Samuel is David walks with God and he obeys. And God blesses him. He brings the kingdom together and he becomes more popular. And by the time he's at his peak, there are over 800,000 troops in his camp. But 2 Samuel 11, David meets Bathsheba. And he lies and he murders. And there are consequences. God forgives him, but there are consequences. Um, David confesses because he's caught. He's forgiven and there are painful consequences. What can we learn? Just real quick, what can we learn? Well, God loves you just as much as he loved David. He cares about you. He cares about your choices. God, uh, God's grace can be on your life. He wants you to walk with him. There are things that he's placed out of bounds, and he's, he's, he wants to protect you from the hurt and the consequences that can happen when you go off course when you disobey him and uh, we should expect some consequences when we stray away from God and I'm going to just close by reading Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 the apostle Paul writes do not be deceived God cannot be mocked a man reaps what he sows the one who sows to please his sinful nature like David from that nature will reap destruction and the one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. David had eternal life. He got eternal life. But he had a lot of painful consequences on this earth. Those are some of the same choices that are before us. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for what we can learn as we study the life of a godly person like David. Father, may we not take for granted what you've told us, what you've instructed us, what you've called us to. May we not take you lightly. May we not forget. May we not let our hearts become spiritually calloused, hardened toward you. 
God, may we walk humbly with you. May our hearts be open to the leading of your spirit. When we face temptation, God, show us the way out. May we desire the way out. We believe, Father, that whatever we sow, we will reap. For Jesus' sake, amen.